A shooting outside of Minneapolis over the weekend is putting the spotlight once again on domestic violence. Police responded to a domestic abuse call and discovered a man armed with multiple guns who barricaded himself, seven children, and other family members inside his home. He killed two police officers and a paramedic before turning a gun on himself. The gunman was not legally allowed to own guns because of a previous assault conviction, and he had reportedly been accused of domestic abuse. To better understand how what happened fits into a broader national picture, we're joined by Rachel Louise Snyder. She's been covering domestic violence for 15 years and is the author of the memoir, Women We Buried, Women We Burned. Rachel Louise Snyder, so good to have you on the program. I want to just run through some, some pretty jarring statistics we just recently pulled from the CDC. This says that over half of the women murdered in the U.S. are murdered by a male intimate partner. Overall, a third of women in America and a quarter of men report suffering severe violence from intimate partners. I also understand that these numbers have been rising in recent years. Do we know why that is? I think there's macro levels and micro levels. I mean, uh, uh, on the macro level, there, you know, women uh, are not staying in bad marriages anymore, and we are better at gathering statistics, right? That's a very simplistic view. But also, guns are um, far more prevalent, and they're used, obviously, for, for homicide, but they're used as threats. They're used as coercion. And uh, I think that uh, uh, men also probably feel like they're losing ground. I think also there, there's a way to read those statistics as positive in that we have more resources now to help more people. So, you know, there's a sense in which the better the resources are, the more people are going to be able to come forward. And so that in itself is a good thing. Um, but it's, it's baffling because you think the more we know, the more we should be able to prevent it. And it doesn't seem to be the case. Do we know how much the pandemic exacerbated domestic violence in America? That's an interesting question, because in the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, rates of um, calls to hotlines went way, way down. And that was a really disturbing sign. It sort of gets at what my previous answer was. That was a really disturbing sign, because what it meant is that that victims were um, unable to access resources and unable to make those calls. Once things loosened up a little bit after the first couple of months, rates of, of calls to hotlines shot up in record numbers really all across the world. And I think coming out of the pandemic, you know, there's a lot of exacerbating um, uh, causes that are not in and of themselves enough to make somebody violent, but could trigger an already tense situation. And those are things like economic factors, um, addiction, and all that, all those kind of social ills have risen, I think, parallel to domestic violence. If this nexus, as you were describing it, between domestic violence and guns is so clear, and again, with regards to the Minnesota case, we should say that in, that case is still being investigated. We don't really know the details of it. But if that nexus is so clear, and it is illegal to possess a gun if you have a restraining order against you. Why is this so hard to enforce? Why is that not protecting more women? That's a that's a question that I bang my head against the wall asking. I mean, the simple answer is you can have a law, but that doesn't mean it's going to be enforced, and it has to be enforced. And when you look at places, I mean, I, I should say there's a there's a Supreme Court case 
addressing this right now. We're waiting the, uh, on the decision. But right now, as you say, there is a federal law banning uh, domestic abusers or anybody charged with uh, a violent um, criminal act of, from owning guns, but those guns have to be collected by police officers or whatever. And then in the case of Minnesota, that man had an arsenal. And if you ask, you go around and ask jurisdictions why they don't enforce that, you'll get a, a huge array of reasons. Everything from, well, that's that's that person's recreation. So you take the guns away, you're taking away the recreation. Um, obviously, the Second Amendment has a place there. You know, we have a right to uh, arms, arm ourselves to the teeth. And I've even had police chiefs say to me, like, hey, we would love to enforce that, but we don't have we don't have a place to hold all these arsenals, you know, thousands and thousands of guns. When you look at a state like California that has enforced that, you see those gun charges go way down. You see homicides go down. I mean, it's it's just mind boggling because statistically, almost any way you look at it, if you take the guns, the rates of homicide and suicide and all other gun crimes go down. But we just simply don't enforce it. You touched on this, the Supreme Court. This is the Rahimi case, I believe it is called. Can you remind us what's at stake in that case? Yeah, that's essentially whether or not so it comes out of a, it's a, comes out of Texas. A, a, a not very good guy um, had access to guns and then had his guns taken away from him when he got charges. And his uh, attorneys have he's in prison now, but his attorneys have filed suit saying he has a right to the Second Amendment. Regardless, and so they're looking. That's what they're essentially deciding. Do does someone who has a criminal charge have the a constitutional right to the Second Amendment? And those of us who are really familiar with the stats just are as living in a kind of terror that the Supreme Court is going to rule that that they they somehow maintain that constitutional right, even though they have proven themselves to be a danger to their community. All right, Rachel Louise Snyder, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you for having me.